Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Hello, and welcome from wherever you're listening from to IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio. This is Cyber Jockey Zach Slotnick sitting in for Radio Joe and Cliff Slotnick. Today we have a special treat for you called Flashback Friday. Flashback Friday is a new type of episode for IAQ Radio, featuring the best of our former episodes. Today's pre-recorded guests will be McGregor Pierce and Felicia Chianciarulo. Please note that this is not a live episode and you will not be able to interactively call in this week. Today's episode is sponsored by Microband Systems, the microbial management company. Check them out on the web at microbandsystems.com. Also, Dry Ease Products, the first in drying solutions. Check them out at dri-eaz.com. And last but not least, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper of the IAQ industry, on the web at ieconnections.com. Without further ado, our feature presentation. around and 
with the big bad wolf ready to huff and puff and blow their buildings down. And I pointed out that even the laziest and the dumbest of those three little pigs didn't make a paper house. <laughs> but somewhere around the 1940s, 1950s, it was decided in uh, value engineering terms that it would be better to take paper-covered panels of gypsum and fasten them to our wall studs instead of the careful application of, of old-fashioned uh, plaster. Plaster is vastly more expensive and difficult to install. It's a highly skilled trade as opposed to drywalling, which is considered a semi-skilled trade and much less expensive per square foot. But if you're concerned about durability, the Sistine Chapel uh, has some failure on the plaster. The the frescoes are are paintings on plaster that Michelangelo specialized in. And these plaster walls and ceilings are often hundreds of years old. And if they don't have water leaks, they can last forever. Whereas when we look to paper material from the 15 and 1600s, unless it's carefully archived, that paper's all vanished. So it's not as durable a building product. Gotcha. I heard that a term... uh I guess that you brought into the English language is wood. Can you tell me what wood is? My friend Wayne Bogan up in Duluth, a carpenter, uh, was the one who actually introduced me to that term back okay. in the 1970s. And I, I have used it and made, made that term famous. But it was Wayne who discussed these various wood products. I think he was mostly referring to oriented strand board, where you take small pieces of wood product in a glue or adhesive matrix and, and make that, that kind of golden-colored wall panel we see so often used as exterior sheathing. That's was wood. Or the particle board that you see bookshelves made out of is another was wood form. It was wood at one time, but now what is it? <laughs> Interesting. Mac, I, uh, this is Joe Hughes, and I'd also like to mention quickly that um, our, our technical advisor, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is also on the line with us, and I just wanted to say hello to Dieter and, and make sure he gets a chance to say hello to our listeners. Hello, Dieter, are you yeah, there? Yes, I certainly am. I'm back from tennis, and uh, I'm dialed in the right number, and I'm here, yes. Great. If you have any questions for Mac, please let us know and, and chime in when you get a chance. Well, I, <laughs> I know you two um, recently maybe shared a beverage at uh, summer camp. Is that yes, true? Yes, we did, and I have to have to credit somebody else now that because I use Max <laughs> Waswood term, and uh, I said Max did t- say that, but we learned now it was somebody else. I think we've all stolen that one. Yep, from time to time. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It is true. It is. It is okay, uh, Mac. Let's let's go back. I've got a couple other questions here. Um, one of them, I guess, that uh, I have a, a a question on mold remediation and mold remediation guidance documents. And of those available, which do you prefer or rely on, and why? And maybe I could quickly tell the listeners we have EPA, New York City guidelines, IICRC guidelines, now OSHA has guidelines. Which do you prefer? Well, I'm going to beat around the bush on that question. Start off by saying that when Cliff called me on the phone years ago, he'd seen an article I'd published in the Journal of Environmental Health on flooded buildings, and it caught his eye. He thought, this mold is a comer. And Cliff sort of (laughs) introduced me to the cleaning and restoration industry, and uh, I talked to them about mold problems in buildings. I've now seen many of these uh, cleaners leapfrogging over me into becoming great experts themselves, and they've produced all sorts of documents uh, related to cleanup and stuff. I've never been consulted on any of them, and so what I recommend that people read is a book called Food Microbiology. Almost all of the good information on mold has been generated by food biologists who have been studying mold in terms of the decay of foodstuffs for hundreds of years. It costs billions of dollars a year, and the best mycologists and the best mold experts have studied cake and the you know decay of vegetables and fruits with mold on them. And this building products industry is mostly people who are trying to make a buck, who've smelled the money and have jumped up and volunteered to be the experts. And a lot of these documents, I think, are best faith efforts to address particular problems. But a lot of them wind up being awfully self-serving in terms of hire me, I know about it. And so I'm, I'm skeptical of almost all of them one way or another. The New York City guidelines, if people want me to refer them to something, I'll say, look at that. They've evolved over the years. They've have gotten better, I think. And there's all sorts of mold experts out there. And I say it's a reader beware. You know, the, the, the food people are who I'd recommend. 
Would, would you agree or disagree that, uh, and I think I maybe just got the answer, answer to this, but that the mold remediation or that uh, mold remediation and cleaning restoration is being driven by self-anointed uh, intra-industry mold experts? Well, what, what I recall seeing, when I recall those cleaning and restoration people that Cliff introduced me to when I was talking at those conferences, and they listened with rapt fascination as I <laughs> gave my presentation, and then instead of thinking, I think I'll call that guy. They thought, hell, I can do that. And so they jumped right up and, and got into it. I don't claim to be a great expert on it. I've looked at thousands of samples and spent a lot of time with a microscope. And I think that if you're going to have somebody be involved in uh, dealing with your microbiological problems, make sure that they actually can use a microscope and do this kind of work themselves. Don't have somebody who used to have a mop pail and a broom, a former janitor, all of a sudden present himself as a scientist or you're looking for trouble. And that's on the investigative side, I, I assume. What about on the remediation side? What what do you suggest a consumer look for in a contractor that's coming in to remediate their indoor environmental quality problem or their mold problem, if it's a mold problem? Go by their house and see if there's a Mercedes 500 brand new parked in their driveway. Look for that big boat. My feeling is that in my area, when people need mold cleanup, there are only a few people I'll refer to because when they're done with the job and I go out and I take my contact plates and my surface samples and do my work to see if there's really any significant residue of mold left, their jobs pass with flying colors because they use proper practices. And I think the SS520 guidelines, many of the different guidelines on there are excellent best practice guidelines, but it all just has to be taken with a grain of salt. There's a lot of panic attached to mold and people who, you know, when you garden, when you disturb soil, when you turn over the compost pile, you're getting a mold exposure then as well. And let's have a common sense attitude. You know, there's, 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 it's such a complicated, enormous subject. If you ask me something specific, I'll give you a specific answer. But, you know, what's the best thing to do? That's caveat emptor. You know, the, the Cleaning and restoration is a skilled art. I'm not trying to demean the profession. These guys, the guys that are good, really are. And getting stuff properly cleaned and dried, getting stuff gutted properly. Basically, when we have a moldy property, what we're concerned about is that we don't wind up spewing clouds of these easily airborne spores all through the property while we're trying to clean up a local mold problem. We don't want to make it general throughout the building by transferring these airborne spores onto the couch and onto the top of the refrigerator and into the lungs of the occupants. And people who do this well can do it well. It's basically upscale construction work. It's doing good construction work, demolition, with good dust control. The lead-safe work practices are often applicable to mold problems. Often in my reports, I tell people not to even mention the M word. Just remove the water-damaged material using good dust control practices. But using good dust control practices, that's a pretty skilled art when it comes to sealing properly and using exhaust ventilation. It can require the right tools, right experience. Whole, you know, how do you find out how good somebody is? It's hard to say because it's an invisible problem often. You know, so how well have they done? Well, you know, do you, do you go to the Better Business Bureau? There's so many people jumping up wanting to be mold cleaners or mold experts because they can do construction work and charge 5,000 times more than they could for just going out and mopping the floor, vacuuming the carpet, whatever. You know, Mac, I know that part of your job involves building science, and I think building science is an evolving science. And would you consider this a, an accurate statement? Do building scientists learn at their client's expense. Learn while you earn. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny how this, these vapor barriers appear to be, uh, uh, you know, in flux and tend to move around. It is funny, isn't it? And the same people that are telling you to do it one way tell you to do it the other way next week, and it's a sort of a shifting field. I think most of us that go out and look at buildings learn from our experience, that's for sure. And the more failures you've seen, the more things done wrong you've seen, the more likely you are to have a good attitude towards doing it right. Now, there was probably somebody that was born beautiful, born rich, born lucky, and everything worked out for them the first time they tried it their whole life. But that's not me or anyone I know. I generally learn by banging my head over and over again until I get sick of it, and I learn my way out of it. And that, when it comes to building science, the more screw-ups you see, the more likely you are to know what to do next time. Hopefully it's not your screw up. <laughs> you see somebody else's, but your own teach you the best. And 
out of those, what would be the most important lesson you've learned during these numerous building inspections you've done? If you could give us one. Oh, it's kind of a it's it, 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 it's really more of a Zen thing than anyone else. My buddy Terry Brennan, I think, who said that too. You know that you you got you got to keep an open mind. Listen to what the people are saying. Don't. Here's the problem with science and in life in general. We tend to see what we want to see and what we expect to see, and those are called biases. And a good scientific study always wants to eliminate bias to make sure that you don't just come to the conclusion that you want to come to or expect to come to. And if your client is paying you to do something, you're going to tend to want to find out what that client wanted you to find out. You know, the dog licks the hand that packs its dish, and consultants get stuck in that lump, too. You get a building product. Is this a good product or not? Well, you know, people want me to test their building products. You know, there's a bias. Of course you want to find out that your client's building product is good. And so you, 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 you formulate a test or a model situation in which the product does well because that makes the client happy. Then they can say, we've tested our product. It works. Well, it works in that model situation. But you could also probably create a model where the product wouldn't work so well. But we tend to avoid doing that if we want to have positive results to make our clients smile. That's a very important bias. And then just seeing things the way you've seen things in the past, it's probably that. I was last week, a very interesting case. I was down in Iowa, and I was looking at an apartment in a below-grade apartment in an all-concrete building. I walked in. The place just stunk. There was visible mold at two locations, on a chair leg and on a closet door. The smell like old tennis shoes, barf, whatever. It was not necessarily just a moldy smell. That was part of it. It stunk, though. And right away, I said, well, it's carpet on the concrete. You know, we've got a below-grade apartment here. Well, it turns out the guy's a concrete expert. There's four feet of gravel underneath the concrete slab. It's jacked up three, four feet above grade. He's got foam underneath the concrete. This is not concrete that's prone to being damp, but I've just, it's my preconceived notion. If it smells bad in a concrete floored below, you know, bottom floor apartment, it must be wet carpet. Well, the, the father of one of the people who was just hanging around points at the air grills up, on the, up near the ceiling, and he says, what about that? And I unscrew the air grill, and the, the barf smell hit me right in the face. I go and look in the air handler closet, and there the thing is an old, leaky, miserable, you know, one-unit air conditioner, and it's all funky. And then I look at my temperature and relative humidity information that I'd gathered and ignored that told me that it was 68 degrees in there, and the relative humidity was almost 70%. There's something wrong with a building that's air-conditioned that cold that has that high of a humidity. This air conditioner is not drying. There's, it's, it's, what it's doing is it's blowing freezing cold air onto surfaces in a room that's very humid. So we're getting condensation and mold growth, and by God, both of those moldy spots were directly in the high-velocity airflow out of the those ducts. So here's some client that was, I mean, there's some guy that was just kibitzing. <laughs> He's the one who solved the problem. I took the money. <laughs> but I was proud of myself when I left, not because I, 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 I wasn't clinging to that preconceived notion of the carpet. That was what the only thing I could think of, but there was something else there. And you know, where I was sitting at the table taking my notes and analyzing my samples or looking at my stuff, I had a microscope there and all this. It was directly in that vomit smell zone, and that air was blowing right on me. I didn't have a clue. I guess it was blown on the back of my head. So that was a very interesting case. Just you've got to wake up and you've got to always look for something else. Keep an open mind. Do you use standard forms, say, for instance, from the EPA I-beam program when you do your investigations, or do you have your own? Oh, no, I don't have any of that stuff. No, okay. I'm, 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 I'm old-fashioned. I, I started doing this before the EPA guys became experts on this stuff, and they didn't, they didn't come and ask me what forms I used, and I don't ask them. I mean, <laughs> I, I, what, what's, you know, these, all these forms and standard procedures tend to be these experts that have got these certifications from these various groups where they went on an Internet class for a week or they sat and listened to some guy talk, and then they, uh, they have a form and a standard method. You know, you're in trouble with somebody like that, especially these guys that go out on these jobs and they send the samples off to a lab somewhere. How can they look at the stuff and see what's going on? I think if people are going to do these microbiological investigations, if they can't use their own microscope, 
then they shouldn't be doing microbiological investigations. They can do moisture investigations. An engineer can come out and solve a mold and moisture problem without ever using a microscope or collecting any samples at all. But if you're going to collect samples, you do them yourself. This is a huge industry, this, this, this sampling industry and these labs. The EPA and all these different groups have just quit paying to have mold investigations done because the lab costs are so high. If you can't do your, I could take any one of you guys in my lab for about a week and teach you how to identify 95% of all the molds you're going to find uh, in, in your investigations and how to use your own microscope. And it's, it's a huge cottage industry. That's just my opinion. Don't sue me. You know, I'm, I don't participate in the lab certification programs and I, uh, I, so I'm, I'm probably uh, just – when it comes to environmental stuff, I think you have to keep me in perspective. If you look at the, all of the environmental investigators and mold experts as an aquarium full of fish, there are ones with fine feathery fins, the angelfish with the beautiful stripes. I'm the one that's down underneath the rocks on the bottom sucking muck out of the gravel. One of the bottom feeders, I generally deal with small clients and mostly in my own local area. So I'm not one of the big national experts that's uh, gotten the big Mercedes. I got an old Toyota and put around. I, I think I was more uh, leading toward the fact that by using a standard format, it might keep you from having these preconceived notions. And it, it sounds like you don't agree with that. I don't know. I've always been, you know, when I think of forms, I always think of taxes. <laughs> oh God! It's another test at school. And you know, standard forms probably would work for somebody. Everybody's got their own methods for getting at things. You know, a smart guy once said the most terrifying words in the English language are "I'm from the government and I'm here to, <laughs> and I'm here to help." <laughs> 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 that was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, imagine how an Indian on the reservation felt. A white man's here to help me. We <laughs> 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 just I guess killed them all off, helping them. Eh? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I understand from your bio, actually, that you actually spent a year on a reservation. How old were you when you did that, Matt? I don't know. I think I was in my 30s or something. I've, 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 I've got a lot. Of, I, I, I'm from Minnesota. There's a lot of Indians here. Yeah, Some of them are my friends. I, they live out in the woods, which is lucky. I like to spend time out of doors. Very interesting. Let me, let me ask you a question about, um, or I'd like to know your opinion, really, of the health risks of fungi versus the health risks of bacteria such as E. coli, Pseudomonas, MRSA? I got started doing this mold investigating. Coming out of graduate school in environmental health, I went to a friend of mine, a hospital environmentalist, to get a project to do to get my degree. And the project he engaged me in was to test various filters for scrubbing mold out of the air, which is a vital concern in a hospital environment when you have environmentally or immune-compromised patients. Mold can actually grow in their lungs, particularly warm, temperature-loving molds like Aspergillus fumigatus, Aspergillus flavus, can actually colonize their lungs, producing a virtually incurable pneumonia. And, you know, how do you clean bleach off of some mold off of some bleach? You know, you can't bleach somebody's lungs. So this was a vital health concern to this very small subset of the population. Now, when you see these boilerplate things, lectures on mold that are included in these mold reports, they call some fungi infectious. Only a small subset of the population has to worry about that, whereas anthrax, bacteria can colonize anybody. You know, these bacterial colonizers, that's what infectious diseases, bacterially related infectious diseases are, is they're inappropriate bacteria colonizing our body. I have 15,000 bacteria, 15 trillion bacteria on my skin, trillions in my body. Only about 2-3% of them have been identified because we can't identify bacteria by how they look. We have to culture them on various media to distinguish one from another. And we've only managed to do that using DNA analysis. They figured out that about 95% of them are strangers to us. We don't really know what they do. Legionella wasn't a well-known bacterium until it made people sick. Then they started culturing it out of the lungs of the people and finding out what it was, finds out it's common soil bacteria, grows in algae particles in the soil. And, you know, so these infectious bacteria, they're dangerous, real dangerous to people. The disease can spread. Mold disease doesn't spread from person to person, and a moldy environment will affect some people much more than it will affect others. Like, for instance, that place where I had that horrible dirt breath air conditioner blowing on me for several hours as I sat in the building. You know, maybe a beer, and I'm cured. You know, a little, little catch in my throat. Somebody else would be having headaches or skin-crawling rash for weeks. I'm not affected by it. I go, you know, it's just the nastiest environments don't seem to do me much harm. Maybe I'm already damaged. 
but some people are uh, some people are violently affected by this stuff, and a lot of times that's why they call me. My building's making me sick, and I can't see anything. I go out there and find there is a mold problem. By golly, they're the only one that's bothered. Their husband isn't. The kids aren't. Just a sensitive person. Mold's different. It's like it's, most people who are affected by mold, it's just an allergic reaction. It's like, you know, if you've got cat allergies, don't have a cat. See what I'm saying? And mold allergies don't live in a moldy home. Right. Is it true you were present when a new genus of mold was discovered called HLS? And could you tell me about that experience? One of my favorite building investigations I ever got to go on. Big high-rise skyscraper in the middle of midtown Manhattan on a beautiful fall day. You can walk out on the parapets on the 50th floor. The construction parapets are, you can walk right outdoors, 50 stories up. Look in the windows, just like the top canopy of the Amazon rainforest. Looking in the windows and see people on exercise machines and stuff, hundreds of feet in the air. Beautiful day. They had a, What they had was they had a leaky elevator shaft from the top to the bottom. They'd installed all this green-treated sheetrock I don't know if it was sheetrock, but a gypsum, paper-faced gypsum product from 50 stories worth that had been leaking in the elevator shaft. And so the elevator shaft was covered with mold, and everyone was upset about it. And there were investigators all through the building from all these different companies, many of them much more famous than me and my buddy, being Cliff here who we're talking to. He brought me in on it. And what do you do with a building where you've got all that moldy sheetrock strapped in with all of that elevator fixtures over it, you know, the thing is, the thing about the gypsum face, paper face gypsum products is they're wonderful fireproofing. So they're a good thing to put in an elevator shaft. They meet all the fire code, but they don't meet the moisture code. And the water dripping uh, was wetting the elevator shaft. And when we went to the, the kind of a summary meeting, the guy who was running the job, he was a sharp guy. And he looks around at me and Cliff and he says, have you been to the basement? And we said, no. And he says, I said, why should we go to the basement? He says, well, that's where the mold's really bad. And I said, what do you mean by bad? And he says, you know, that black and orange Halloween-looking shit. <laughs> so Cliff and I went down to the basement, and by God, it was black, and it was orange, and it looked just like a Halloween pumpkin. And I, we put a label on it, HLS, and took pictures of that, and Cliff and I show that stuff all over the country. <laughs> it actually illustrates a, it illustrates a serious point, though, that these microorganisms can form sort of films, and the more wet opportunity they get, the more they sort of form a team in these Biofilm formation is a very interesting phenomenon in nature that we're just starting to explore now, whether it's a surgically implanted device in a body that gets a bacterial biofilm or some of these building biofilms. They can become much more difficult to uh, to eradicate. But that's HLS anyway, boys. Well, Mac, it has been <laughs> tremendous having you. We have a few minutes left. I wanted to check and see if uh, Dr. Wild Dietrich, do you have anything you'd like to add or ask <laughs> Mac while we have him here? Uh, uh, what does uh, what was HLS? What does it stand? Should I ask? Halloween-looking stuff. <laughs> that's not what he said, but that's what I'll say. No. Oh, all right. Yeah, I was afraid of something like that. Now all of our viewers will be in on the joke. Um, HLS, uh, yeah. Halloween-looking stuff. Uh, stuff. No, right. We'll use stuff since we rated A. I think, which is for anybody. I know. I know <laughs> another word that starts with S too. It could be substituted easily. Right. Don't, they, don't they find you hundreds of thousands? of dollars for saying stuff like that on the air? I'm no, not, no, no. i got to say, this internet, this, this kind of on-the-air stuff is so exciting. Just think if we stepped it up a ramp, ramped it up a step and we had ourselves on screen. I'd have to wear a shirt, but other than that, <laughs> it'd be TV conferencing, I guess, I think it's, and radio conferencing. It's such an exciting thing. I really enjoyed listening to last week's show. You had real knowledgeable experts on there. I think this is a, a great opportunity. I appreciate you having me yeah, on. We're having fun doing it. Before we let you go, Mac, is there anything we missed? Is there anything you'd like to add? I think that we really have to start turning back from our miraculous inventions and looking at how nature has designed the pre-existing world, if you will, as if we weren't a part of it. We need to start getting with the program. We're running other creatures right off the planet and potentially running ourselves off by not paying attention to the quote-unquote rules of nature. And I'd like to see us uh, making more naturally integrated building designs and lifestyles. That's probably the most important thing I could think of for my children and potential grandchildren to have a good life to live like we have on a beautiful blue planet in the middle of space. Mac, it was our pleasure having you on, and we'd like to have you back again sometime. Really appreciate Certainly. it. Thank we you. Thank you, and uh, we do have it in the pipeline that you may have to put a shirt on one of these days when you're on the uh, on the show here, Mac. So uh, we're working on that. Okay. 
thanks for having uh thanks for being with us and uh hope to see you again soon. Bye now. Take care. Just a reminder that today's episode is sponsored by Microband Systems on the web at microbandsystems.com. Also, Dryease Products on the web at dri-eaz.com. And last but not least, Indoor Environment Connections on the web at ieconnections.com. And next up, guest Felicia Chianci Arulo. Tell you no lie, it's in our rivers and streams. Kulai, I'll tell you why, it's in our rivers and streams. Want to uh, do the honors for Felicia? Oh, I'd be glad to. Exactly, uh, ever on the line? Okay, wonderful. Okay, our next guest is Felicia Chandrulo. And Dr. Chandrulo received her PhD in molecular biology, genetics, and microbiology. I'm sorry, microbiology from the University of Pennsylvania. In addition to that, she's done work for the Department of Defense and the EPA. Dr. Chandrulo is a member of the faculties of Carlo College. In addition, she teaches microbiology to nursing students at Mercy Hospital and at Allegheny Community College. Uh, she also has a private consulting business, which trades as FLC, Technical and Scientific Consulting. Felicia, good morning. Thanks for coming on to our show. Hi, Cliff. How are you? Good. Hi, good. Felicia. Hi, Joe. Nice well, to hear from you again. I got a question for you. You know, it said the Department of Defense, and if you can tell me without having to kill me what you did for the Department <laughs> of Defense, I'd like to know. Um, the, the, the two uh, projects that... Um, uh, I worked on with the Department of Defense and the Environmental Protection Agency were um, they were specifically directed at bioremediation and with the EPA it was looking at the oil from the Exxon Valdez spill cause we, because we still have some of that oil available and looking at the ability of um, testing products that individuals were uh, manufacturing um, and designing efficacy tests to determine the um, the usefulness of their product. And then with the Department of Defense, um, that involved actually um, sampling um, military sites that were no longer used and designing organisms to um, bioremediate contaminants at those sites. Very cool. Well, with this work that you've done, is there one microorganism that you're especially intrigued with, and if so, why? Um, I'd, although I don't work with it, uh, Pseudomonas is a, is a very unique organism, and um, the reason that it intrigues me is because we found it in everything from jet fuel to respiratory equipment in a hospital that has just been cleaned, and it's a very what we call ubiquitous, which means it's it's present everywhere, and it constantly changes to uh, adapt to any new environment. You know, my wife uh, is into bottled water, and I know you have some experience with water, and I was wondering what your opinion was of bottled water versus tap water, actually. Well, there's two sides to the story with the bottled and the tap, and, and, and I'll, I'll I'll give you both sides of it. The first one, and I tell my students this because many of them drink bottled water, and um, the one side is that the, the spring water is better for you. And when, the, when bottled water first came out, now they have improved bottled water um, and it's sanitary uh, testing, but when it first came out, a lot of the bottled water was not tested and the argument was, well, yeah, it comes from the mountain spring, but how do you know what happened to the mountain spring before it got into your bottle? And the students never think about that because it runs through uh, material that can have organisms in it. And so it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't say sterile or uh, treated spring water. It was just spring water. Um Water coming from the tap, uh, 
like I tell my students, it, it, you'd be better off buying an expensive bottle um, of water, emptying it out, and then refilling it with tap water and walking around with the label. Because especially in Pittsburgh, we have some of the best water, probably because we have so much of it. Um, it's tested and, um, you know, water coming from the tap doesn't mean that it's sterile. What it means is that the levels of living organisms are low enough so that we won't get sick. And not, not a lot of people realize this, but, um, and I wouldn't have known it myself, but had when someone from South America comes to the United States and drinks our tap water, they get just as sick as we do going down to their country. And it's not that we have better organisms or we do have better sanitation, but it's what our bodies become used to. And so when you when you go to some another place and you encounter other organisms, um you can get just as sick as somebody coming to your uh, your country. Well, my my son's in the the studio and in case the um lines go dead or the radio goes down, this is probably uh payback, but what I'd like you to do is venture an opinion on this. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for the potential health risks, risks of this scenario. A young kid clogs and overflows the commode after having a bowel movement. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my kids aren't the only one that have done this. As a matter of fact, both both of my sons have done it on multiple occasions. And I'm wondering about what the potential health risks are. This is something that commonly occurs, and I think maybe people, do they overestimate it or do they underestimate the health risks? Well, I think what you have to be careful of is you can never be too um, I don't want to say you have to panic, but if you remember that 50% of fecal material contains live organisms and you've just had a, an overflow in the toilet, what's the first thing that a person does when the toilet begins to overflow? They throw down towels, they grab the mop, and when it's all cleaned up and then they wash with um, maybe Lysol and then bleach and everything smells nice. And it looks nice. But That's pro- if it's on tile. What if it's on carpet? Exactly. Right. Well, if it's on carpet, then uh, hopefully they didn't use Clorox. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least it, it you know it smells nice. And but there's still tons and tons of microorganisms that are there. And being a pathogen simply means that. It's an organism that is is not in the correct environment and that it's also at levels that can cause illness for a human being. And, for example, what I mean by that is E. coli is a necessary microorganism in our bodies. If we don't have it, we wouldn't be alive. Why? Well, it produces vitamin K, which we don't produce, but anticoagulant. Right. And we need that. That's the first thing. And the second thing that it does is um it it helps us to absorb our food. It breaks down certain uh food products that we have more difficulty with. And um the last thing it's involved it, it's involved in um B vitamin absorption. So without E. coli and, and we see this when people take uh heavy doses of antibiotics, they get stomach problems. And that's because it's also killing off the uh, E. coli, which are good bacteria. In our intestines, they're doing a wonderful job. But when they come out of the intestines and they go back into the digestive tract through the oral route, um, they they become pathogenic because they, they produce... Uh, and, and they produce endotoxins, I'm sorry, exotoxins, which um, are are dangerous and they make us violently ill. So um, when someone has a, a backflow in the bathroom, um, I don't think you can be. Uh, you, you don't. You, you have to be careful about what's what's normal in the body, but now is not where it's supposed to be, and has the potential to divide every 20 minutes which is what E. coli, that's how quickly it can divide. And 
But the other thing that you have to be careful of is um, anything that the person harbors in their body is now part of your bathroom. And so if they have a virus or they have an, you know, maybe they have salmonella, now that is part of your bathroom. And if not treated carefully, then it has the potential to infect other people in the household. Would that be more likely if the other people were, say, in some way uh, immune compromised or had a, you know, weren't as healthy as the individual that caused the problem in the first place, maybe? Um, well, you have to be careful because most people who are in, you know, the middle age or in the prime of their life are going to be able to fight off uh, quite a few um, assaults by microorganisms. I mean, we get hit with them constantly, day after day. But what you have to be careful about is when children are young and the immune system isn't fully developed, and then also when people are older, um, because then the immune system starts to decline from age 30 on. So um, the older you are, the less um, efficient your immune system is. So those two extremes are going to be most um, susceptible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, a person who has a good working immune system um, can't come down with an illness. So, for example, let's assume that someone is shedding hepatitis. Um, it doesn't really matter if your immune system is in prime working condition. If you come into contact with enough of the virus, you will most likely have an infection. If you ingest it, you'll have hepatitis A. So it's again it's it's quantity and um you know the um, how well your immune system is working. And even within families, I'm sure you've seen situations where individuals you may have a sibling that constantly gets a sore throat Another sibling constantly gets a respiratory infection, and another one constantly gets a skin infection. And even within, you know, individuals who genetic makeup is at least 50% similar, um, they're each very different with their immune system. So, yeah, you have to be careful with that. Um, I guess I had another quick question. There's a... Occasionally this pops up, Felicia, and I, I, I'm curious what your opinion is on this issue. There are occasionally these mold remediation prod, products, I guess I'll call mm -hmm. them, that utilize competing microorganisms to, I don't know, digest the mold or whatever mm -hmm. they're you know, uh, promoting. What is your opinion on those types of, uh, the, the potential for those types of remediation techniques. Again, that that's kind of it came out of bioremediation and that's essentially what it is. And um the the theory for that is that the organisms when put into the environment will compete with the organisms that you are trying to get rid of because they have the same food source. And um the argument or the benefit to them is that when the food source is gone, then um, the organisms will die. And there's there's a couple problems with that in the household. From a bioremediation standpoint of looking at um, a large ecosystem, like the Exxon Valdez spill or, or a military site, that's a different story. But from a, from a home environment or from a building environment, um, there's always going to be food source there. You have wood, drywall, skin cells, um, animal dander, hair. All of those contribute to a food source. So it's very hard to say that an organism will die when it loses the food source because essentially your house is the food source and your body is the food source. Um do they work? Um, they might initially. They might initially work. Um, I don't think that 
we have enough information um, on products, and I don't think we have a, a a standard for testing these products. And again, that's sort of what the EPA was doing, was trying to get a standardized test for these products. Um, the other The other caveat of it is if the organism that you add to compete with the organism that is undesirable dies when the food source goes away, why didn't the organism that you didn't want die to begin with? What was the need for making these competing organisms if they are all if they all die when they lose the food source? Right. Why introduce the secondary one and potentially, exactly. potentially a legal risk of uh, it's not what was here before that's making me sick, but now you end up buying my indoor environmental problems after exactly. you introduce this. And remember, these organisms always mutate. I mean, we... What do you mean by mutate? I don't understand. They will change um, their genetic makeup. Actually, they don't make a conscious decision, but it's the survival of the fittest. Those that can exist in a different environment will live. And it's it's a random change in the DNA that gives them an advantage. And you can't control that. You can't control when that happens. We can't control it in our own bodies. And we can't control it in bacteria. So what you have to be very careful of is these organisms either have to have a time um, a lifespan where they'll die after so many divisions programmed into them, or you're going to run the risk of possibly them not, or they could change in your home. And like you know, just like Cliff said, now you have an organism here that wasn't there to begin with and has the potential of making you more ill because you don't know what you have now. With respect to water damage restoration and and mold remediation, there's a lot of competing information about what the role and use of antimicrobials are in these types of cleanup activities. Can you give us your opinion on what the role is and when they would be useful and when they wouldn't be useful? Well, antimicrobials are are going to be useful in a lot of uh, in a lot of different categories, they they're good in the category one, just because they could, would get rid of the low levels from an initial spill. Um, they're good in category two because again, the levels are going to be increasing, and um, and then in, and then the category three, I think you have more remediation to deal with or more cleanup before you use an antimicrobial, but there are just categories to explain to listeners, the categories of water okay. that um, is based a lot of times on the source, although I know Cliff has a follow-up question to that, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it wasn't a follow-up question. I, I think that there are these categories that are used in the RV industry. You know, they, they use potable water. They use the term gray water. They use the term black water. I think, and, and what's happened is I think these terms have come into the water remediation industry as part of a document called the IICRC S500, which is you know, water damage remediation standard, and what they've done is they've taken these definitions and they have uh, modified them. Do you do you want me to explain where they come from, or? Um, um, yeah, I, I I would just if you could do it quickly, that would be fine. Sure. Well, a cl- clean water would come from a broken in water incoming water line, overflow of a tub or a sink with incoming water. Um, a broken toilet tank. So nothing that has really come into direct contact with human waste. But once it spills, then as it you know, reaches the floor, then it has come into contact. Um, gray water is a discharge from a dishwasher, washing machine, aquarium, waterbed, um, toilet bowl with urine only, um, and a sump pump failure. 
so there's a, there's some organic matter in there, and there's a low level of microorganisms. And then the last one is the black water, and that would include sewage from any type of point and non-point source, um, a toilet backflow originating beyond the toilet trap, and any type of flooding. And th this is there's two things I, I, I would like to uh, to address. Um, from those water sources, and that is with flooding, you know, when people have a, a problem with flooding, um, whoever's doing the remediation really needs to do a good questionnaire for the for the homeowner because um, when people, you know, when water's in your basement, um, you don't think to look around you. Um, are there ducks? Um, are, there, are there a lot of raccoons? Are there a lot of bats? Um, some microorganisms come from animal waste, like um, cryptosporidium. They come from birds, which is cryptococcus. And um, depending on what's around the home, that can influence, number one, what people brought in with their shoes, and number two, what came in during a flood. And the other thing is that um, a study was done about two years ago in, in Allegheny County um, where they tested the um, clean, supposedly clean washing machines. And 50% of all washing machines had fecal material in them, which means they had living organisms. So, I mean, that's not a comforting thought. No, no. Because you think when your clothes come out, they're clean, but... Imagine going to the laundromat. Well, I'm, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> But I mean, this is your home, and so. But but when things back up, you know, the water that was in the bottom of the washer, the whatever the kids brought in on their shoes, what the dog brought in, this is all now part of your, um, the, you know, the flora in your home, and um, you know, those are things that people never think about. And it's it, you know, the other thing too is um, when you flush the toilet. It doesn't all go down. It goes up. You know, I mean, hopefully, I mean, and not up and over, but it actually goes up into the air. And so all these things can come into play. And um, But the original question of the antimicrobials is, I am a proponent of them. Um, I, my, my, my problem with them, I think they're, they're good in, our, in this industry. What concerns me is um, there was a product, and I don't know if I can say it. It's a commercial product, and um, and the lady was under the impression it was on the television. The lady was under the impression that if it smelled good, then it was clean, and that's not true. And we're putting these antimicrobials at such a low level into everything, into every product into a retail product, that what we're doing is we're creating these, these microorganisms that are actually resistant to antimicrobials. And we're going to have a really hard time killing these things. Um, we're already seeing it in, the, in, in living bodies, in, in animals, in pets, and in humans. So I, I, I'm a proponent of antimicrobials, but I think they should be I don't want to say regulated, but they should be used by the professionals in this field. I and guess. I guess the, what my question is, and and I don't know the answer to this, is that I was under the impression that antibiotic resistance and so on and so forth within humans uh, w was the result of this abuse of antibiotics and people not taking the entire regimen and mm -hmm. feeling better and stopping taking them. Uh, you know, the funny thing is we've been killing uh, rabbits a long time with shotguns, and they breed pretty often, and a shotgun pellet still kills a rabbit today, the same as it, it ever did. And I just, again, I just wasn't sure whether the mechanism by which an antimicrobial works on, on a surface and the way that some of these things work in our bodies are a little bit different. But well, the, an, an antibiotic, when when we say that, um, something is resistant to an antibiotic, we don't become resistant. What happens is it's the microorganism, the bacteria, 
specifically that becomes resistant. And the reason for that is um, bacteria only have one chromosome. So they're very basic. But then they have these little pieces of DNA that are called plasmids. And they can be transferred from one bacteria to another while the bacteria is in your body. So when someone, for example, doesn't finish a regimen of antibiotics, there's still those couple bacteria that have managed to evade the uh, antibiotic. And what ends up happening is they then mix with the other bacteria in your body and the two bacteria share these plasmids. And these, plasm and these plasmids are what holds the antibiotic-resistant genes. And what they're doing today is they're getting, these plasmids are getting bigger and bigger and more complex. So they carry antibiotic resistance for 5, 10, 15 different antibiotics, and they can just transfer from one bacteria to another. And so the more that we use antibiotics, the more the bacteria are developing ways to transfer genes that make them resistant to these antibiotics. And when you don't kill everything from taking an antibiotic, then it will grow back in your body and, it, and most likely have accepted one of these plasmids, which now you can't get rid of it because the antibiotic that you took the bacteria is now resistant to. And again, the problem here is it's transferable. So it can jump from one bacteria in your body to another. And that can also happen in um, water damage. Because if the person, you know, if the bacteria came from fecal matter um, it and it's mixing up in the water that came out of the toilet, then this can be transferred between different bacteria in your home. Felicia, before you go, anything you'd like to add for our consumer audience? Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I, that I usually end with um, whenever I give a talk is that it's, um, and this, this was brought up um, in the earlier segment, and that is, um, you know, a lot of people go out and search for someone who does testing, and and you can find places that do that, um, and and certainly you know, uh, and then they're and the, and the results are good, but what do they do with the results once they get it? And I think that you know it might cost a little bit more, but when you need testing done, you need to go to a reputable, um, either a, a, a testing facility or a consulting firm that's going to provide you with. Um, some more than just numbers on a page and that can give uh, especially a homeowner or a building owner um, some um, guidance and, um, you know, some additional information. So I, I think that's very important because, you know, I've had clients call me and say, I have these results and I don't know what they mean and no one will tell me anything. I so, got that call yesterday. <laughs> and that's, that's important for for um, consumers, and I think when either it was Bob or Gail had mentioned earlier that they spent an hour on the phone with a potential client, I believe it was, it's important for a consumer to maybe spend a little bit of time and understand or try to determine whether or not this person can relate in layman's terms back to them, what do these numbers mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's one of the ways you find out is by asking them some questions on the phone and uh, having your, uh, ed, you know, done your research prior to doing uh, any interviews of potential people doing work in your home. And I don't think they should be afraid to ask questions. I mean, and again, that was brought up previously. I mean, don't be afraid. And if you don't understand what the person's saying, maybe that place is not for you. And and if you also shouldn't expect to pay for answers either. Well, that's true, too. And that's... There's a fine line there between the two, but, um, you know, and I, and I think it's, you know, the, the consumer has to kind of 
make that decision. All right. Anything before we go? Did we miss anything? Is there anything you would like to add? Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Felicia. Hopefully, we will get back together in the in the near future, and maybe we'll have a, a little round table with uh, you and Bob and some other bacteria and uh, virus and fungi experts. And I'm going to wear my rubber gloves for that. <laughs> yes, um, I, I probably I. Should I um, should I let you know if, of, if anyone would want to contact oh, me? Oh yeah, yes, please. How, yeah, we should have asked you that. How how do people get in contact with you? Um, you can do that by email, and that would be Felicia F E L I C I A at F L C S C I dot com. S L C S Today's episode was brought to you by Microband Systems on the web at microbandsystems.com. Also, Dry Ease Products on the web at dri-eaz.com. And last but not least, Indoor Environment Connections on the web at ieconnections.com. This has been another IAQ Radio production.